I want to start this morning with a quote by G.K. Chesterton. He says, The believers in miracles accept them, rightly or wrongly, because they have evidence for them. The disbelievers in miracles deny them, rightly or wrongly, because they have doctrine against them. As we're studying the book of Hebrews and we're talking about the the topic of faith, there's a lot that that faith has been presented as. Uh, A lot of times faith is presented as, well, you either believe it or you don't. You either drink the Kool-Aid and just accept it and have no questions and never ask, never question, never uh, have doubts, or you're not really a, a true believer. Right? That's often how faith gets presented. And it doesn't leave any room for wrestling and asking questions, which is actually a really healthy part of making your faith personal. If you've never wrestled, you've never asked questions about what you read, about, about the nature of God, about who He is, then there, sometimes there's a step missing where we actually take faith and make it our own. So I want to start off by saying this morning, it's okay to have questions. It's okay to feel like there's things that you don't understand. As a side note this morning, if you have questions, I want to invite you to keep them for the end of the service because we've got a lot that we want to get through. So I would love to talk to you about your questions. Please keep them for the end of the service or talk to me afterwards. We can set up a meeting. I'd love to uh, sit down and talk with you. So it's okay to have questions. But questions are very different from what the Bible calls unbelief. Because unbelief is a, is a refusal to look at the evidence before you. Unbelief has often been, been uh, portrayed as the sign of an intellectual. But actually what unbelief does is it keeps us from intelligence. It keeps us from actually evaluating and looking at the evidence before us. But see, we don't have, we don't use words like that. We don't say, I'm, I'm stuck in unbelief. We have much more politically correct and, and kind words. We say, well, we don't say, I, I'm in unbelief. We say, I stayed up all night worrying. Ouch. We don't say, I, I'm struggling with unbelief. We say, or I, I'm struggling with We don't say, I don't believe the character of Jesus. We say instead, my experience says. We don't say, I'm struggling with unbelief when it comes from praying for the sick. We say, well, the Holy Spirit didn't lead me to pray for that person. I didn't hear him. 
Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, starting at verse 7. It's a quote from Psalm 95, I believe. This is what it says. It says, this is why the Holy Spirit says, if only you would listen to his voice this day. Don't make him angry by hardening your hearts, like your ancestors did during the days of their rebellion, when they were tested in the wilderness. There your fathers tested me and tried my patience. Even though they saw my miracles for 40 years, they still doubted me. I think this is an incredible place to start because if you look at the story of the Israelites, they had been in Egypt, they had been slaves, and then Moses shows up on the scene, and through Moses, God starts doing miracles. He starts, and he actually... uh, comes against the Egyptians. Moses stands up and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh continuously says, no. And so God brings the plagues. And the Israelites saw all of the plagues. They saw the power of God to set his people free. And then, after the plagues, they leave. Pharaoh finally says, go, get out of here. And they leave Egypt. And they get to the Red Sea. And they're standing there like, all right, what are we going to do? How are we going to cross this? And in front of their eyes, they see the sea in front of them part in half. And dry land appear in the middle. They walk across it themselves. This is, this is like an intimate experience. They don't see this in someone else's life. They are the ones who walk across dry land. And then they see that God brings the, the sea closed again over the the. Egyptians, how he conquers and fights the Egyptian army on their behalf. And then time after time, he see, they see his provision in the desert for water, for food, for absolutely everything they could need. And after 40 years, or sorry, after, after, before 40 years, after wandering, going through the desert, going through all of that, they stand on the, on the edge of the promised land. And they doubt God. It wasn't for lack of evidence that they stepped, that they walked in unbelief, that their hearts were hard. It was that they never translated the miracles of God to his character. Verse 16 says this, it says, The same people who were delivered from bondage and brought out of Egypt by God were the ones who heard and still rebelled. Because at that moment, in spite of all their experience, in spite of every time that God showed up for them, the giant that that was standing in front of them looked bigger in their eyes. I want to encourage you with this this morning. That we are to unhinge doubt from our lives by feasting on the miracles of the faithful. That we are to unhinge doubt from our lives 
It's one thing to have doubt. It's one thing to have questions. In fact, I think that's, that often that's a healthy part of wrestling with our, our relationship with Jesus, wrestling with faith. But the key to unhinging it from our lives is to feast on the miracles of the faithful. Because every miracle that God does, it points to His nature. It points to His character. When you've experienced God's provision, miraculous things in your life that you say, yeah, that was God. We can look at that and we can stop there and be like, oh, that was awesome, but He probably won't do it again. Or we can look at that and say, He did that because that's who He is. We need to start translating what He does into who He is. God doesn't provide for you just because He had some extra change laying around. He provides for you because He is provided. It's in His nature. Hebrews chapter 3 starts off with this encouragement. We're going to go back to verse 1. It says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, you are now made holy, and each of you is invited to the feast of your heavenly calling. So fasten your thoughts fully onto Jesus, whom we embrace as our apostle and king priest. For he was faithful to the Father who appointed him in the same way that Moses, a model of faithfulness, in what he was entrusted, in, in what was entrusted to him. But Jesus is worthy to receive a much greater glory than Moses. For the one who builds a house deserves to be honored more than the house he builds. Every house is built by someone, but God is the designer and builder of all things. Indeed, Moses served God faithfully in all he gave him to do. And his work prophetically illustrates things that would later be spoken and fulfilled. But Christ is more than a servant. He was faithful as the son in charge of God's house. And now we are part of his house if we continue to courageously, to hold firmly to our bold confidence and our victorious hope. Hebrews chapter 3 starts out by saying, Jesus is faithful. That's our foundation. When we're wrestling with unbelief, when we're wrestling with questions, the foundation that we come back to is Jesus is faithful. That's why the author puts it down as the very first thing to address in this chapter. Jesus is faithful. He is faithful to his word. He will do what he says he will do. And so when I see his works, when I see his miracles, it gives me a foothold to stand on when it comes to faith. To stand on who he is in the face of the unknown before me. When it feels like there's giants in front of me and there's unknown in front of me and there's things that I don't understand in front of me and I have questions and I have doubts, I go back to the foundation that Jesus is faithful. He is faithful to who He is. See, my faith is not built 
on a belief system my faith is built on a person. I have faith because of one who is faithful. When we look at faith as just some kind of abstract concept that we just believe something because somebody's told us that and that, that doesn't hold up unless we understand that I believe it because I know the one who spoke it. I have faith in what God has said because I know the nature and character of the one who spoke it. If I can use my wife as an example. Uh oh. <laughs> if she was to tell me, I'm going to pick you up at 10 o'clock, and 10 o'clock rolls around and she doesn't show up, 10.30 rolls around, she doesn't show up. My first instinct isn't to say, well, she's just left town. She just caught the next ferry out of here. She wanted to get as far away from me as possible. That's obviously what happened. No, that's not my first instinct. My first instinct is to say, I know her character. Her desire isn't to leave me stranded somewhere. Something must have come. And yet so often, when it comes to God, we start to question His motives. Something happens that we don't understand, or we have questions about, and, and the first thing that we question is the motives of God, or the motives of God. But if I understand His character, I don't question His motives. When I learn who He is, When I walk in relationship with Him, I don't need to question His motives because I know His character. I know that He is faithful. I know that He will do what He says He will do. Turn with me to John 10, 38. John 10, verse 38. It says, But if you see me doing the beautiful works of God upon the earth, then you should at least believe the evidence of the miracles, even if you don't believe my words. Then you would come to experience me and be convinced that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. These are the words of Jesus. And I love that, that in Jesus' teaching, He doesn't just show up and be like, well, I'm God, so just believe everything I say. He actually says, if you don't believe what I say, at least believe what I do. Because what I do reflects the nature of my Father. And you will see that I am in the Father. You will actually have an experience with me. It's incredible. That, that Jesus himself would say, if you don't believe what I say, at least believe what I do. And that will lead you to an encounter with me. To knowing that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. 
And there's a couple instances in the Gospels. In Mark chapter 3, verse 5. It's, the, it's Shabbat. It's the, the, the day of rest. And there's a man with a shriveled hand and they're in the synagogue, or in the temple, sorry. And everyone's watching Jesus to see what he's going to do. To see, will he heal this person on Shabbat? And it says Jesus looks around at them. And this is one of the instances in the Gospels where it talks about Jesus getting angry. It says he gets angry at their heart. And then the result is that he goes and he heals the man. And then what the Pharisees do, they see this healing. And instead of looking at that and saying, wow, that's amazing. You know what their next step is? It says, then they plot to kill Jesus. Their hearts were so hard that when they saw the miracles of God, they didn't translate it to the character and nature of the Father. They said, we need to get rid of this guy. We need to kill him. And so from then on, they started to plot how they were going to kill Jesus. And again, in Matthew 13, 58, Jesus preaches in his hometown of Nazareth, and maybe you know this story, but he shows up there and he's preaching, and everyone's like, wow, the revelation that this guy has, the wisdom is so incredible. And then, they're like, well, but isn't his sister, like, live down the road, and don't we know his mom? And then it says they were offended with him. Can you, can you recognize this for a second? That, that Jesus preaches, everyone's in awe, and their response is to be offended with Jesus, who they were just in awe of. Instead of looking at what he was saying and looking at what he was doing, See, unbelief isn't about evidence. It's not about proof. It's about a hard-heartedness, unwilling to recognize what's right in front of us. And then it actually says, it says, he was unable, he was amazed by their unbelief and he was unable to do any great miracles except for just heal a few sick people. I love how they put that, because for most of us, that, you know, that's Jesus' bad day. For most of us, that'd be a good day. <laughs> their unbelief actually kept them from seeing the power of God in their lives. And it actually says he was amazed at the depth of their unbelief. Their unbelief wasn't a result of not seeing. It was about trying to find another explanation for what they were seeing. Here's the thing. is Our unbelief doesn't change the faithfulness of God. But it does change how much we see. If you want to look deeper into that on your own time, you can look at Romans chapter 3, 3 and 4. 
But see, our unbelief doesn't change the character of God. It changes our ability to see Him in our lives. I wonder if if we would actually Instead of, instead of buying into this idea that, that faith is just about believing something. Absolutely, there's an aspect of belief. But where it's this idea, what if we would separate ourselves from this idea that we just need to drink the cream? And we would actually put energy, faith, into discovering who Jesus is. If we would recognize that, that my faith is not centered on a belief system, it's centered on a person. I have faith because of the person of Jesus. How would that change our lives? When I'm faced with a situation, I don't know where the next dollar is coming from. Instead of this, this mindset of, well, if you just believe that the money is there, then the money will be there. What if instead of that, we would say, you know what, it's not about my belief, it's about the person of Jesus. Because he is a provider, because he is faithful in that, I have faith for provision. I have faith to see the sick healed and the dead raised, not because of something in me, but because Jesus is faithful. Church, faith is birthed in a heart that responds. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith, then, is birthed in a heart that responds to God. You think they were quoting me or something. Conversely, in Hebrews 3.12, it says we become... Actually, I'm going to read it. It says... Hebrews 3, chapter 3, verse 12. It says, so search your hearts every day, my brothers and sisters, and make sure that none of you has evil or unbelief hiding within you. For it will lead you astray and make you unresponsive to the living God. How is faith birthed? It's an open book test. How is faith birthed? We just read it. It says faith is birthed birthed by responding to the word. To what God speaks. We get this whole idea of faith and work so mixed up. See, we read a passage like James 2, 23 and 24, and it says, Because Abraham believed God, his faith was exchanged for God's righteousness. So he became known as the lover of God. So now it's clear that a person is seen as righteous in God's eyes, not, nearly, not merely by faith alone, but by works. Oh, hold on a second. Hold the train. Do you guys hear that? 
So we read that and we're like, all right, Susan, I need you to work really hard because that's in the Bible. Then we read Romans eleven six, 6, and it says, Since it's by God's grace, it can't be a matter of their good works. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a gift of grace, but earned by human effort. Then Romans 3, 27 and 28. Where, then, is there room for boasting? Do our works bring God's acceptance? Not at all. It was not our works of keeping the law, but our faith in His finished work that makes us right with God. So our conclusion is this, God's wonderful declaration that we are righteous in his eyes can only come when we put our faith in Christ and not in keeping the law. So we have James that says we're made, that, that righteousness is hinged on works, and then we have Romans that says it's not. What do we do with that? And we get all messed up and we're like, okay, so then, well, well, then it starts at grace, but then I need to work really hard, and then I 